I'm going to read Matthew chapter 14, uh, 13 through 33. You can follow along. It'll be behind me on the wall. And uh, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, that's fine as well. Matthew 14, 13 through 33. It says, When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. As he stepped ashore, he saw a huge crowd, felt compassion for them, and healed their sick. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, This place is a wilderness, and it is already late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy foods for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. But we only have five loaves and two fishes here, they said to him. Bring them here to me, he said. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down in the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was filled. Then they picked up twelve baskets full of leftover pieces. Now those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already over a mile from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Around three in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, Have courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of Peter and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly you are the Son of God. And it closes with those words, Truly you are the Son of God. I want to talk to you this morning from a little bit different angle. If you've been in church for a while, you've heard this story. If you haven't been in church for a while, you've probably still heard this story. The feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water. Anybody who's ever heard the name of Jesus, these are maybe the two miracles you most think of besides the resurrection. These are the miracles that that, that they're just wide in their effects with thousands of people being fed. And they play on our imaginations. They give us these pictures in our heads, right? When I was a little kid, I remember learning these, the, the, the walking on the water in Sunday school, you know, and there's this little flannel graph thing, and then Jesus kind of did this across it. And every time I swam in Lake Michigan where I grew up, you know, I kind of wondered what it'd be like to kind of rise above, you know. All my friends are sitting out here, and here I am up on the water walking around, you know. The imagination of a six-year-old, that's, that's, that's me. But this morning I want to talk to you from a very different angle than probably what you've heard before uh, I want to talk about addiction. I want to talk about an addiction. And frankly, we know a lot about addiction in our culture, right? I mean, almost everyone here knows somebody who's gone through some sort of rehabilitation. Probably many of us, many, many more of us, know somebody who should go through rehab. Addiction is, is and I looked up a definition for it, it says it's an uncontrollable compulsion, an uncontrollable compulsion to repeat a behavior regardless of its negative consequences. Addiction, again, is an uncontrollable compulsion to repeat a behavior regardless of its negative consequences. We know about alcohol addiction. We know about drug addiction. We know about other forms of addiction that are coming out, and probably a week doesn't go by if you go to a local supermarket where you don't read in the front of a tabloid that some 
celebrity has just again checked themselves into some rehab. We are familiar with this sort of deal in our, in our culture, right? We're familiar with addiction. What is a little bit less known is how people change because of addiction. We start to look at everything just a little bit differently. Shelby and I have close friends, and you hear us talk about them. They're, they were heroin addicts. They were homeless on the streets of Coatesville when a judge sentenced them, sentenced them to Teen Challenge, and they came to Christ going through this rehab clinic. And it's kind of an amazing story, but one day we were talking about it. They don't often like to discuss this, and the woman in the equation, Sherry, Shelby's friend, said to me, she says, you know, a heroin addict, by definition, is someone who can steal your purse and then help you look for it. That was her That was her explanation of herself as someone who had been involved in an addiction. Literally everything in their life got to the place where they were looking at each relationship, each working situation, each housing situation from the vantage point of could they get heroin in their lives. And everything was viewed through that grid. They would sacrifice anything to get what they wanted. Tim and I were out for dinner a couple weeks ago, and we, were, we began talking about this addiction concept, and he said that he had been researching it, and addiction, he said, is something that you want it more than it satisfies you. One of the signs of addiction is that when you go after it and you get it, it doesn't satisfy you. You just keep wanting it over and over and over again. Now, you would agree that addictions are normal in our culture. This passage is going to tell us about another form of addiction. I suspect it's an addiction that goes back so far that there's never been a human being who didn't struggle with it. It's beyond all of those addictions that we hear about in our culture today. It's to the very primal location in our souls and hearts. I call it the addiction of winning and losing. It's the addiction where we look at everything as though we are either winners or losers. We're involved in a competitive environment and we're comparing ourselves to each other and we imagine ourselves to walk through life as either winners or losers, depending on each situation into which we walk. This is not something that was invented in the 21st century or the 20th century or the 19th century. The disciples of Jesus were people who understood this addiction. You know, 11 out of 12 of them were probably from northern Israel. And it was said during the time of Jesus' ministry that if you wanted to be smart, if you wanted to be cultured, then you were from the south. If you wanted to be wealthy, well, then you were from the north. The people in the north had all of the rainfall in Israel. And if you look at a satellite map, even today, you'll see that around the Sea of Galilee, which is where the story we are reading today takes place, around that sea, there's a whole lot of water. There's great places to grow, and there's great places to, to harvest, and there's great places to graze flocks, and there's a whole lake that people were fishermen. And, of course, at least four of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. One more of them, we know, was a tax collector. And these were the people in this culture who were definitive losers. Every time they came to Jerusalem for a religious festival, everyone looked down their nose at these people. There is no no lower form of life in the human race, according to an Israelite first century person, than a tax collector. They were people who turned their back on on their own race and served the government of Rome. And so Matthew, who tells us this story, that was his vocation. He was a tremendous loser. And he was, in a, he was accustomed to walking into each situation. He might have been wealthier than everybody else, but he was walking into a situation, and he, he was anything but recognized. He was never honored. He was ne- never someone who anybody wanted to be around. And you know about fishermen, right? When you catch a fish, nobody wants to see you until you've had a shower, right? And there were no showers in the first century. What must Peter have smelled like? Can you imagine? 
The people who Jesus drew into his ministry were definitive losers, but it's my suspicion that once they started to follow Christ, that changed immensely. Immediately there was something that altered because they started to follow this great bright light, this great hope of, of Israel. He was the greatest teacher of his time, and he, as he did miracles and the crowd started to grow, these were the famous people. In fact, there probably was no one more famous than Jesus. And his inner core of disciples got accustomed to going from being people who used to be losers to now they were winners. And they started to see themselves differently. They started to imagine that they fit differently in the world's economy. They understood themselves to be something more than they used to be. And so they started to follow this Jesus and the fame grew. And you can imagine people watching and amazed and and just following him around. They got what I'll call big heads. They They got admired. And what one can only imagine what would have happened when Peter started to do miracles himself. You know, the Bible tells us that it wasn't just Jesus, that he actually empowered these guys to go do the very same things he had done. And so these people were people who were going around healing the sick. There were demons cast out by these disciples, and people started to revere them. It wasn't just Jesus. It's a rags-to-riches story, and if that's where we left it, the disciples would be feeling pretty good. But the story I just read for you and that we're going to talk through this morning is a whole new tale. It's the story about how people who thought they were losers and became winners shrink back down the ladder of life all over again. And so let me tell you, this story takes place, and I'll begin with just the first verse. It tells us that Jesus, when he heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to, remote, to a remote place to be alone. What you need to know is that what he had just heard about was the death of his cousin and probably closest friend, John the Baptist. He had just gotten word that Herod had inappropriately murdered his cousin. This was the John who went around preaching and got people ready for the message of Jesus. They were really partners in ministry. And it abruptly ended as Herod first imprisoned John and then eventually killed him. And so Jesus gets this word and these disciples who are growing in their own minds are really these people who are kind of subservants under Jesus. But they're excited about their role in this world and they're starting to be recognized and people noticed them. They were the, they were the, the trustees board for this major corporation ministry. Jesus was starting to look like a televangelist and they were getting excited with their role and people were noting them. And now Jesus has been broken and there's grief. And it says he's traveling to a remote place to be alone, and there's no wonder why. This is what happens when we go through time of grief, right? If this were on a tabloid, it would say so-and-so has just checked themselves into a retreat center, and they're getting away, and they would like some privacy. Please don't call, don't write. You hear celebrities, celebrities do this once in a while, right? But in fact, he invited his 12 closest disciples. And I want to tell you this morning that it's my suspicion that this was another chance for these disciples who had grown in their understanding of themselves as winners. They started to grow a little less enchanted with themselves so, as they've been. And they started to go, let's grow a little more. They started to look at themselves and be competitive. And so as Jesus is going away to this retreat center, as he's going away to be alone, they're going, yes, if we get to be a part of the ministry, the only real growth place for us now is that we get to be the um, intimate confidants, the people who are the supporters. We're going to go and we're going to create these new strategies for ministry in northern Israel. We're going to go away and we're going to get out the whiteboard and we're going to get out the flow charts and we're going to talk about what ministry needs to look like and we're going to rehab Jesus and then we're going to come back at it. And you can just read between the lines that they had grown to the place where they had accepted the fact that they were winners, but it wasn't enough for them. And they wanted to go even further. 
And they wanted to go even further by supporting Jesus in the moment of his need and being known as the people who, even when Jesus was drawn away to be alone with God, these were the only 12 guys to be invited. They were the creme de la creme of this new society. And where people had held them out in the past, now they started to think of themselves as the people who were inside. And they were excited that no one else was in. Well, that's now how it actually worked, right? Jesus and the disciples get in the boat and they travel the six miles across Galilee and the crowd was so excited by Jesus' ministry. After all of this passion and all of this excitement about Christ, these people who had been following him around from city to city and when he went to synagogue, they packed it. And when they went to his friends' houses, they packed the friends' houses, literally at one point lowering a sick person through the roof because he couldn't get in any other way. They traveled across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, eight, nine, ten miles, and they outwalked the boat. And when Jesus and the disciples get to this retreat center and they get to the place where they're going to be away, they're literally out of Israel. They're no longer even where Jews live. They're out in Gentile territory. And here's this whole mass group of people awaiting the ministry of Christ. And so they land on the seashore. And one can imagine the disciples' response. Oh, no. We were supposed to go away. We were supposed to kibitz and connect and kind of get together and start to, to do this internal ministry. We were supposed to reanalyze ourselves and reassess where we're at. We were supposed to rethink this whole thing and help Christ to re-energize himself. And now there's 5,000 men with who knows how many women and children in front of us. And they're between us and our goal. And no longer are we the exclusive people, the winners of this society. We have a bunch of people who are now encroaching on our territory. They thought they were going to get alone with Jesus. They were thought they were going to get his attention. They were excited because it was a chance for them to rise above. And instead, there's all these thousands of people, maybe as many as 10 or 12,000. If men are 5,000, who knows how many women and children there were on top. But the disciples, their emotions, which isn't really revealed in the story, what is revealed is Jesus emotion. Immediately he has compassion on the masses and he spends the rest of this day not getting away, not praying, not connecting with his disciples and doing this kind of team building exercise that you might have expected in this moment. Instead, he spends this day healing. He spends this day preaching. He spends this day the way he spent day after day after day before it. And the crowd is still there when nightfall comes and the disciples see another opportunity. And they say, Jesus, you know, we have all these people here and we don't have any food. Send them away to the villages. We can now get on with what we were planning to do. We can get away with you. We can go up into the mountain. We can do this whole thing. And Jesus says, no. No. You see, these people are addicted. They're addicted to winning and losing. They're addicted to looking at the world from the perspective of people who are either winners or they are losers. And this story gives us a completely different opportunity. Instead of winners and losers, they're going to end up in a completely different place. They're not going to end losing or winning. They're going to end up off of that paradigm altogether. But midway through the story, they're still thinking, we need to win, and they're still trying to manipulate this moment and trying to get alone with Christ. And Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. Well, the disciples say, well, how would we do that? We have five loaves and two fish. Famous words in the Bible. Five loaves, two fish, 5,000 men. Who knows how many women and children besides? Five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, bring me these five loaves and two fish. And he sits there and he breaks the first fish. And then he breaks it again. And then he breaks it again. And then he breaks it again. 
and he just keeps breaking. And the bread, the same thing. And he passes a basket of food to Peter and then to Thomas and then to Matthew and then to Judas and then to John. And these people who were one-time losers who had become winners, they become waiters now. They go out throughout the crowd, and you can imagine hundreds of people gathered like this. These disciples are the waiters. They're passing around baskets of food, and they couldn't actually talk. They probably wanted to get together and go, what's gone wrong here? What's the matter with this story? But instead, they're now having to exchange looks across the crowded hillside, and they're looking at each other, John looking at Andrew, and Andrew looking at Peter going, what is happening? Where is all this food coming from? What's more is, where, where is all this food coming from? What's more is what happened to our plans, our expectations. We thought we were getting away with Jesus. We thought we were going to look important. We thought we were going to be in this exclusive group. And this 10,000 people laden hillside says we're anything but exclusive. And now we're just serving the masses once again. We're really not winners. But they passed out the food and first 50 people and then 100 and then 500, then 1,000 and the food. Jesus just keeps breaking the food until it gets to 1,000 people have eaten. Eventually 5,000 people eat and it keeps expanding until everyone on the hillside gets enough to eat. And there's 12 baskets left over. People aren't coming up and asking for more. They're literally done. They've had enough to eat and these five loaves and two fish have fed them all. And one might have thought that the ministry of Christ, this miracle was done so that the ministry could continue into the evening time. But Jesus said, no, that's enough. We're good. But he does something interesting at this moment. Let me read it for you. If you're following along in the scriptures, you can pick it up in verse 22. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. So Jesus leaves the crowds on the hillside gathers the 12 waiters together again, says, you think you're winners, now you're losers, go get in the boat. And the 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children remain seated. The people who are dismissed first are the people who thought they were supposed to be alone with Christ. Did you catch it? There's this moment every Sunday morning, the word in the Bitework house is hurry. No matter how fast my kids move, they need to move faster. No matter how much cereal they eat in a short amount of time, they need to eat it more and quicker. And, you know, all this pressure that I place on them, I have, to, I have to stop periodically and say, let's just breathe. Let's just hug. You know, we have group hugs. Now hurry. Let's go. Let's go. And all of that hurrying, by the time they get in the van, it's inevitable. When they get in the van, they look at each other, and they're disappointed because they know they're disappointing me. They feel this pressure. There's this constant stress on Sunday mornings. And they're sitting in the van, and they're looking across the back seat at each other, And it's when the grumpiness really grows. Now, they don't direct their difficulties towards me. They don't tell me about anything. It's at that moment that one of them inevitably takes a pot shot at the other, you know? Verbally, somebody grumbles. Why did you get the da-da-da? Why did you have the pink bowl at breakfast? Why do you have my purse? Aren't those my tights? It goes on and on and on. You've heard it before. So here's my, and this is not from the scriptures. I'm just guessing. But when these 12 guys get in the boat, and they start to set sail, and they get at the oars. What do you think they were talking about? They're disappointed. They thought they were going to have this day of becoming winners. They thought they were gathering with Christ to be this, in this exclusive group, and now they're being sent away ahead of time, and the whole crowd that they never wanted there is still there, and they're having to leave. I guarantee you they were taking pot shots at each other. You know, the, If you've read the New Testament, you realize they were given to this anyway, just like you and just like me. 
They were addicts of winning and losing, and they realized they were losing, and in their disappointment, they would have said, no, I want to be on that side of the boat. No, I want to be on that side of the boat. No, you're not rowing fast enough. Why do I always do all the work around here? You can only imagine. You can only imagine. Jesus dismisses the crowd, and he goes and he talks to the only person who can support him at this moment, the Father God. And he spends the evening not with the 5,000, not with the 12, but alone. And he meets with God. And after working through whatever it is that he had to work through, and I wish I could know, I would love to have heard the prayers of Christ to be there just to listen. I promise I would have taken a vow of silence just to hear that moment. But nobody knows what he prayed. And when he's done, he looks out and he sees that boat. A mile is not too far to look, and the boat is just a little over a mile. Now, the Sea of Galilee is six miles wide. Calling it a sea is highly optimistic. You know what I'm saying? I'm from Michigan. I grew up on Lake Michigan. At its shortest point, if I remember right, Lake Michigan is 80 miles across. You can't see the other side. The Sea of Galilee is six miles across. On a clear day, you can definitely see the opposite shore. He looks out and he sees this boat, and they get into the boat, and when the disciples get into it, the wind hits them from head on. It's, they've got a west wind, and the waves rise. And that sea is known for having disproportionately large waves and storms come up. And they're rowing, and they're sailing, and they're tacking back and forth, and they can't win. They're literally losing before the face of this wind. And Jesus performs at this moment the miracle I find, personally. This is just me. But the miracle I find the most heartening. Maybe the greatest miracle of this day. I mean, after all, he walks on water and he feeds the 5,000, but neither of those are what I find really interesting. When he looks inside those disciples' hearts, I can only imagine what he sees. He sees fear. He sees anger. He sees disappointment. And most of all, he sees this addiction that we could just call pride, right? And yet he decides to meet them where they're at. It's at this moment that even though they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus meets them where they're at. Where does Jesus meet us? Where we're at. And one of the most amazing things about this story is the middle of the Sea of Galilee isn't too far for Jesus to walk. He didn't wait for the next morning to take a boat across, and he didn't walk around the northern side. He decides to go out there and rescue them from themselves. They probably weren't going to die on this night. The wind wasn't going to conquer the boat that badly. They could have just turned around and come back to shore. The reason that they're in all this trouble is because they're in trouble with themselves, and they knew it. And Jesus comes out there and walks to them and meets them where they're at. Now you know when you see people who you're used to seeing at work and you see them at the mall or you see them at church, you're like, what's your name? I know you. I know that face. Context is everything for how we know people, right? These disciples, they don't recognize Jesus. Why don't they recognize him? Because he's walking on water. Nobody should be able to do that. And he says, no, it really is me. And Peter looks at them and he says, if it's really you, tell me to get out of the boat, and I'll walk on the water too. And I, I wish we had video recordings or, you know, at least sound recordings of the New Testament. You know, it would be just great to hear Jesus' tone of voice. But I almost wonder if Jesus laughs. Okay, you want to walk on water? Go ahead. And Peter, being the brash one, climbs out of the boat. And he starts to walk across the water to Jesus and the waves are going up and down and the wind's blowing on him, but he's able to do it. Jesus enables this miracle and he's walking towards Christ. And then he looks down. He wonders. The wind catches up with him. And my suspicion is that there's something else that catches up with him. How many men were there in that boat? Twelve? To be the first non-God person 
to walk on water. Can you imagine? My name is going to go on forever if I pull this off, you know? The, the 11 disciples behind me are green with envy. Judas Iscariot is absolutely just, oh, why couldn't I have thought of that, you know? Here comes Peter walking on the water, and he's going, yes, I am the man. And then what happens? The water hits his ankles, then it hits his knees, and he realizes he's going down. This moment of great exaltation, when he's going to be lifted up in the eyes of everybody watching, the moment when he's going to win, he does anything but get lifted up. He sinks. And as it turns out, it's a moment of great humility. He cries out before Jesus, and Jesus lends him a hand, floats back onto the surface of the water. He says, what happened to your faith? What happened to your faith? You know, I've got to ask you, and you've got to ask me. All of us sitting here today have to ask ourselves, what happens to our faith in this moment? You know, this whole addiction of winning and losing, the pride that's behind it, it mixes with faith. It mixes with faith like oil and water. These two things never go together. When we look inside ourselves and our motivation is to win or our motivation is that we've already lost and we might as well not try, either of those, whatever it might be, what actually happens is we look at the almighty God of the universe and we say, we don't believe. Now the fact is we walked in here this morning and you probably believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus was the Son of God and is the Son of God and that his death and resurrection are true. You probably walked into that. You're in a church. You had those presuppositions. But the fact of the matter is in any of our lives we can lose faith in the, just the quickest of moments when our pride competes with our walk with God. And so what Peter experiences in this moment is envy and jealousy and excitement and enthusiasm for himself and for his own winning and what happens as he sinks and the disciples and everybody kind of find this new center, the new real, and they realize where their pride has taken them. What happened to their faith? They thought they were the men. What happened to their faith? They thought they were the losers. And either one of those deals is not the truth. Why did Jesus save Peter? Why didn't he just let him sink? I mean, probably Peter could swim, right? It would have been really funny to watch him swim back to the boat and climb over the side. I've done it. I mean, you know, I've fallen out of a boat before. Why didn't he do that? Because he loved him. You know, he loved Peter when he was in the boat grumbling. He loved Peter when he was waiting on the masses, passing out bread and fish. He loved Peter when Peter was presuming to be the support the, the counselor, even the psychologist of the Son of God. He loved him even then. He loved Peter when he was at his most arrogant, and he loved him when he was at his weakest. He loved him when he was a loser and just a fisherman on the seashores of Galilee. And he loved him when he was a winner, when he cast out his first demon. There was never a moment that changed that simple fact. God had always loved Peter. What's more is he always would. And at the end of this story, there's this line, and you've got to hear it. It echoes with new gravity, new force, in my mind at least. Truly you are the Son of God. They all say it. Truly you are the Son of God. And what they mean is, truly only a God could love us like this. Only you could love us like this. Only you could take the losing and the winning and push it so far off to the side that all we see is you, Lord God. You know, the real deal behind all of this pride is that Peter's asking a question and James and everybody else in that boat, they were asking a question through the whole story. Who am I? 
And then the answer was going to come from everybody else, okay? Who am I? And you define me, okay? So whoever it is, the crowds, if they couldn't get into the exclusive retreat that they're going on with Jesus, well, then who they are is this group of exclusively important people. They were separate. And so who defined them? All of those people who couldn't be there. That's who they were. And when they were losers just serving those same people they wanted to keep out, passing out the bread and the fish, who were they? They were losers, you know? They were looking at their sandals the whole time. Okay, here you go, you know? Who were they when they got in the boat? They were people who were disappointed and set apart in this grumbling sort of context and just trying to get away. They wanted to be alone and they were stuck in a boat with each other. Each one of them probably wished they could have just walked separate roads back to their own houses and be left alone altogether. But the question wasn't, who are they at all? The question was, who, are Jesus, who is Jesus? And they stopped looking at Jesus. And until that moment when Peter is sinking in the waves, nobody has the motivation to actually look at God the right way. At that moment, he looks at Jesus and says, I'm falling, I need help. And God, broken as Jesus might have been in that moment. I mean, damaged by the passing of his cousin, grief-stricken about the person whom he loved as much as he loved anybody. He reaches out a hand and he raises this Peter, this broken, messed up guy, and he raises him above the waves and he met him where he was at and he blessed him. He brought peace to the storm of their lives and they went home. And that's how the story ends. Are you walking through life asking, who am I? Do you walk into every room going, how do I fit in this room? Everybody's looking at me. How do I fit? Am I, oh, I'm, I'm smarter than everybody here. I can tell. I, I have another set of degrees behind my name than anybody else in this room. I'm so excited about me. Oh, I'm richer than everybody here. I have more money. Or no, if everybody in this room knew my past, if everybody knew in, in this room what I did last night, if everybody in this room knew my addictions, my other addictions, Do you walk into a room that way? Because every time you walk into a room with either of those sets of ideas, what you're doing is you're saying, it's not important who Jesus is. What's really important is who I am. What's really important is who I am. And Jesus is holding out his hand and he's saying, what happened to your faith? Where did you go? You've known that I loved you where you're at. You know that I came to meet you where you're at and you're making it be about all this other stuff. Just stop. Let it go. Let it go. Where's your faith? We close this message the way the disciples closed the message in Matthew chapter 14. We just need to say it and say it with me. You are the Son of God. Say it. You are the Son of God. That's what's important. The question isn't who is Josh Blightbrook. The question is not who you are. The question is who is the Son of God and how does he feel about you? And the answer is he loves you. Join me in prayer.